Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast, where we dissect some of the biggest stories from the past week. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher on Women's Agenda, and I'm here today with a special guest, Georgie Dent. How are you, Georgie? I'm well, thank you. I'm very happy to be back chatting with you. So Georgie is our contributing editor on Women's Agenda, and she is also uh, the executive director of The Parenthood. So on the agenda today, employers, uh, please take some responsibility for the pandemic and the kids that are at home at the moment. A little touch, I might touch a little bit on Ash Barty, some great political memoirs and an interview with MP Linda Burney. Thank you for listening. Hi, Georgie. It's so nice to see you again. It's been a long time. I know you've been very, very busy. It has been a busy 2021, but it's so nice to be back here talking. So it is NAIDOC week and my colleague, well, our colleague, Tala, she has, she's got a great interview with Linda Burney that's coming up after we talk about some of these uh, first initial stories that we're going to go through. So Linda will share uh, a lot more about the theme of NAIDOC week, which is Hill Country, and she talks about the need for the national process of truth-telling, which would form part of the three tenets of the Uluru Statement, so voice, treaty and truth. So please Uh, stay tuned for that interview coming up very soon. But Georgie, we do like to start by sharing some wins for women. Do you have a win this week? I know it's a difficult one this time. I don't think, you know, we're both Sydney siders. We're probably not feeling particularly great. We need these wins. What have you got? We do. And look, some people might not view this as a win, but I do and I will explain. Um, I was watching um, Julia Banks give her interview with Laura Tingle on ABC 7.30 earlier in the week and I was struck by how amazing it is that we do have these women now coming forward who are so articulate and courageous and are telling truth to power. They are delivering messages that are not welcome Um, And I think that, you know, you and I have been working in this space. We've been writing about sexual harassment, for example, in the workplace for a really long time. And I don't think I've ever seen a year like this year where we have got so many women coming out and telling their stories. And I think that I wish that the story that Julia Banks had to tell from her time in Parliament was a very different one. Um, but I think given she had the experience she did, the fact that she's been willing to lift the lid and talk about just how toxic and sexist that environment is, um, is something we need to hear. I agree. And I think that interview as well, she did note the power that she has. And she talked about a specific unwanted sexual advance that occurred in Parliament House. And she spoke about how, you know, if that was her experiencing that given at that point with this, um, uh, it was a former front bencher, if at that point there wasn't that much of a power disparity, she asked the question, what about women who, who don't have any power at all? And I thought that that was so telling. I actually ended up writing about it. And also just it is a win in that sense that we do, having really high-profile women speak out like that makes a dramatic difference for so many other women who may 
not necessarily have the voice, may not be able to speak, but to to hear that, to know that they are not alone um, and to potentially see that um, what they might be experiencing is is absolutely wrong and not on as well. And I think I think that was the point that a lot of us reflected on, that if a woman who is, you know, she, Julia Banks had a very successful corporate and legal career, she didn't go into politics because she, you know, hadn't had success. She went into politics because she had. And as you say, she was, she was um, much closer to the same power as her male colleagues than for example, young staffers in her office. And, I mean, just um, obviously the, you know, Brittany Higgins has really changed the course of Australia's history, I think, in terms of the conversation that we're having about how women are treated in Parliament House. Um, And, you know, Julia Banks feeds into that. But just, you know, today we've seen that um, Kate Sullivan, who was, you know, the second longest serving female um, in Parliament has come out talking about a horrific incident of sexual harassment um, or sexual assault, actually, that she faced in the 1980s in Parliament House. And she said specifically she only told that story because she saw Brittany Higgins on the front page of the newspaper earlier this year and thought if a woman who is that young is courageous enough to tell her story then she felt empowered to tell her own story. And she, again, like Julia Banks, she hasn't named the person who perpetrated um, the assault. But I don't think that's the point. You know, I think that what we, when people say, oh, well, why can't you name these people? You, you completely overlook that that would be another whole piece of trauma for the, for the woman to deal with because we know how women are treated when they come out and even when they don't name their harassers, let alone when they do name them. Um, but I think that this lifting of the lid we're seeing, and I guess also the the way in which these women are being embraced. So there are definitely people out there who would like us to believe that Julia Banks is, you know, was some sort of emotional petal, couldn't cut it in that room. But I would say looking around at how Australians have reacted to her story is that people believe her and they are asking, you know, if a woman like that is treated this way, then what hope do the less powerful women have in workplaces all around the country? We do have an interview with Julia Banks in the podcast episode before this. And Georgie, you may not have had a chance to listen to that because we've only put it out in the last like 15 hours or so, but it is there. So go back and listen to it. It's a great interview. My win is kind of related uh, in the sense that um, uh, it, it comes from, actually, sorry, two wins. First of all, Ash Barty. She is through to the final of Wimbledon. Uh, she was my win in the last podcast episode as well, so I feel like I'm cheating a little bit by going back to her again. But how amazing that we get to see an Australian in the final of Wimbledon for the first time in 41 years. So she... Um, basically described her win overnight as good as the tennis kind of that she'll ever play. I I love those kind of lines that you get from Ash Barty as well because she's always humble when she wins and she's always gracious when she does not win. She is such a hero and such a beautiful role model for all of us. Um, And, of course, for Ash Barty, Yvonne gulligan Coley is her hero and she was the last Australian woman to win Wimbledon in 1980 and also an Indigenous woman. So what... An amazing thing for all of us to be able to watch this coming weekend, especially those of us in lockdown. So congratulations, Ash Barty. The second little win I wanted to go, and it was just off the back of Julia Banks, and it follows a piece that we've just published today, which is about a 50-year history of 
women's uh, political memoirs. And I liked this story as well because there's lots of good reading in there. Um, so it obviously kind of leverages the fact that Julia Banks has just uh, released her memoir. But it also goes to the first from Dame Enid, um, Enid Lyons, the first woman elected to the House of Reps who published her memoir in 1972 and kind of outlines how she was always seen as a risky political experiment. There's the edu- former education minister and the late Susan Ryan who published um, her memoir, really pushing to promote women in parliament. There was, of course, Julia Gillard's My Story. There's Cheryl Kono's, there's Christine Milne's and an activist life in Georgia. I remember when you and I interviewed um, Christine uh, many years ago on this same podcast. Um, Kate Ellis and also there's Senator Maureen Faruqi who's just released Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud. I say just released. We've just received a copy so it might be coming out in the coming weeks. But so look out for that one. But there's plenty of great reading materials there in 50 years of women publishing political memoirs. Yeah, I just wanted to add um, that I have goosebumps just thinking about Ash Barty and listening to you speak then. And I also just can't help but imagine if next week your win is also going to be Ash Barty because imagine, imagine if she pulls it off and was to win Wimbledon. But, I mean, as you say, whether she wins or loses, she's so gracious and tenacious and I just feel so proud to be an Australian um, when I watch her play or speak mm, absolutely yes I, I I mean that might be my win it'll be my win regardless of whether she wins or loses next week so Ash Barty you've already won <laughs> I think you've already won amongst all of us um okay so a story I wanted to discuss today so is about a certain employer in Sydney Georgie I might actually get you to run through this story so basically I saw that you actually published this or uh, sorry shared the link across LinkedIn it was from a story from the Sydney Morning Herald and I've written a little comment piece on Women's Agenda this morning on my feelings about this uh, situation, particularly as a parent of three kids, seven and under, which uh, this requirement from this certain council was asking of. So, Georgie, take us through what has happened with Bayside Council in Sydney. Yes, so um, the article that I saw was published in the Sydney Morning Herald um, yesterday afternoon and it was um, alluding to an email that this particular employer had sent around to its employees reminding them that um, no one is allowed to be working from home while also being um, responsible for the home learning um, or care of children who are seven and under. Now, given that this is um, an employer in New South Wales and more specifically in Sydney, so it is absolutely affected by the current um, lockdown that certainly does not look to be going away anytime soon. Um, And I think it is just quite extraordinary that we would have any employers at this point in the cycle thinking that giving those sort of instructions um, to, to their employees, and basically they said you need to make alternative arrangements. So you either need to take annual leave or unpaid leave, but um, they're not accepting people working from home who are also in charge of homeschooling or home learning, emergency schooling, whatever you want to call that. And it is so unrealistic because we know that at the moment for for families to follow the stay-at-home rules, it means unless you are an essential worker who cannot work outside the home, you know, ideally you won't be sending your children to school. Now, what this 
employer is effectively saying it to its employees is this is on you to navigate. And, you know, with my hat on as executive director of the parenthood, I know how damaging COVID-19 has been to the mental health and well-being of parents and children. It has been diabolical. We know that. Um, and adding to that burden the idea of an employer saying this is a situation for you to navigate, a situation that is completely out of the control of employees, is so disappointing. And I think it just goes to that point that lots of us feel, which is that parenting and caring is just not recognised, you know, that it's not something that you can put in a box and, you know, we don't have endless annual leave. You know, I think most for, for working parents with children at school, just trying to balance that, you know, if you're lucky and you've got four weeks, trying to make that fit around the 12 weeks of school holidays that are in a year is so difficult, let alone being told to eat into your leave every time we have a lockdown. This story I found so grating. Like I said, just being one of those parents myself, you are too pretty much Georgie and your, your girls are a little bit older than my boys. But um, to see that and to think that also that we are so far into this pandemic and we know what these lockdowns entail. And if you don't have kids, you've also seen what parents with those young children are dealing and contend with if you're working from home and you have those Zoom calls and you see what's going on in the background, you hear it. I think, yeah, I feel like everyone kind of understands. To see an employer do this and to see, in my mind, an employer saying, we are not taking responsibility for kids in this pandemic. We are not doing our part because I believe that every employer is responsible for children in this pandemic because Every employer should be family friendly and every employer should understand that the only way that we get through this is that if we make it as easy as possible for staff who can work from home to be able to work from home. And I appreciate that not everyone can work from home. In this case, it does seem like a lot of people can work from home. With this council, they're probably also classified in many cases as essential workers, I'm guessing, um, given it is a council, I think. But to also see the justification that it's on the grounds of health and safety, and I'm, you know, I'm not an, a, a health and safety expert, um, maybe I'm missing something here, but I look at that and I think, okay, you're saying that they can't guarantee a health safety OHS um, in these workspaces when you've suddenly got kids involved at home. But I think other employers seem to be able to have sorted this out and also, how are you protecting the safety and health of your staff, those working parents, if you're saying, hey, maybe you should send your kids to school, which would you know, ultimately heighten their risk of exposure to the virus, or maybe you should work outside of school hours, which means that they're likely going to be working when they probably may have expected to have been sleeping because kids don't just you know, stop requiring their parents at 3 o'clock. Um, there's still a lot of other stuff to manage after that time. Or the other one that maybe you should just take leave. And again, like you say, like they might not have leave. I just think, come on, employers, like I don't want to see this. You know, last year in Melbourne I remember reporting on the law firm that had staff uh, still going to work as if that was necessary for them to be going to work because unlike every other law firm, they couldn't manage uh, them working from home and they had their own little COVID cluster, which was horrible to see. To see this from a council, I just find it so... Just just disappointing and just absolutely off and not in line with the, you know, let's be in this together, let's support our staff, let's support 
parents especially right now because, you know, it is a really tough job trying to manage small kids at home, let alone assist them with remote learning. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I think that we know that the only way any of us can get through this pandemic is by doing everything we can to limit our movement where that's possible to, to, to you know, particularly right now in Sydney. I mean, the, the Premier has said that this is the most challenging, this is the most dangerous situation that New South Wales has really been in since the start of the pandemic, just because this new Delta variant is so contagious. And I think what we are asking individuals at the moment is really significant, and that is we have to be mindful of the risk that each of us poses to, to our fellow citizens and peers. And the idea that you could somehow create a situation where parents are able to realistically, you know, divide their work from their parenting responsibilities is just, you know, ludicrous. And as I mean, there's there was a lot, there were a lot of comments um, when I shared this article on, on LinkedIn around that critical issue of trust um, and also of empathy. And I think that, you know, there's so much evidence that shows that when there is mutual trust between an employer and an employee, productivity is improved, morale is improved. Um, And this is one of those moments where I think there needs to be trust and faith and recognition that the people that you employ are not robots. They do have responsibilities outside of their paid work commitments And we all need to take a moment to to reflect on how individuals are able to cope with that. And I think that I get so upset when I think about parents having to deal with not just the sort of fear and dread and stress of, of being locked down and trying to work and look after children, let alone attempting some home learning, and then let alone having to think, oh, now my employer's telling me I'm not allowed to do this. No parent has chosen this. No one, I don't think I know anyone who would think that this is an ideal situation? Yeah, and no, um, no parent. I mean, I, I dare say, uh, is particularly enjoying it either. As much as I recall, a sto- writing a story last year about um, remote learning, the idea of it, you know, the th- it being about crisis learning instead, and how we need to reframe and stop trying to think we're setting up some kind of homeschool at home because that isn't actually possible. And I remember I had someone write to me saying that I should, you know, just try and, and enjoy. <laughs> this time with my kids and it's like yeah I don't know that you got the crisis aspect of this it is it is stressful it is exhausting and like we say it is leading to burnout and we need employers to be as supportive as they possibly can and other colleagues to be supportive as well and for all of us to support people no matter what their family situation you know we've got to think about those living alone or those in relationships, those who are in share houses, whatever it is, to really make sure that um, we're all accommodating how they are managing that work from home situation right now. So Georgie, I am going to cross to our interview. So we are so grateful for Linda Burney to take the time to speak with Women's Agenda during NAIDOC week. And she does this interview with Women's Agenda Editor-in-Chief, Tata Lambert. So Linda Burney is the Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services and for Preventing Family Violence. She was the first person to serve in the New South Wales Parliament in 2013 and the first Aboriginal woman to be elected to the Australian House of Representatives in 2016. So we'll cross to that interview now. Just apologies for the audio. I appreciate it's not the best. Um, We are obviously trying to do what we can um, in this 
lockdown situation with various Wi-Fi issues, phone issues, that sort of thing. But crossing to that interview right now. In 2016, Linda Burney became the first Indigenous woman elected to the Federal House of Representatives, rising to take on the Shadow Ministry for Families and Social Services, as well as for Indigenous Australians. Throughout her career as an educator, a state leader, and now a federal politician, she's fought and campaigned tirelessly for the rights and welfare of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, championing reconciliation and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Linda joins me now to mark NAIDOC Week and to discuss this year's theme, the notion of healing country. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you so much for making time to chat today on the Women's Agenda podcast. That's okay. Look, I am conscious of your time and I know that you've got a lot on your plate this week and I'm really, really grateful that you could make time to do this. Um, I want to talk a little bit, it is NAIDOC week um, and we've been sharing the perspectives of Indigenous women on the notion of healing country, which is this year's theme, obviously. Um, What are your thoughts on this? In your mind, what needs to occur for Australia to heal? The thing that I think would be the most healing for Australia is a national process of truth-telling, which of course was part of the um, uh, the three tenets of the Uluru Statement, uh, voice, treaty, truth. And it would seem to me that a national process of truth-telling would be transformative for Australia. Mm. Uh, There are lots of ways you could do it. It would be complex. It would probably cost a fair bit, but it would be something that could involve all tiers of government, uh, the business sector, the faith community and civil society and every school in the country. I mean, it would be just fabulous if we could, if we mm. could actually get something like that in, mm. in motion. What do you think the resistance is to something like that? I'm not sure if there is resistance. Certainly uh, the federal government is not talking about it. But there is is an absolute uh, willingness to pursue this from the party that I represent, the Labor Mm -hmm. Party. Uh, But I also spent some time uh, back in the 90s on the National Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation uh, where you know there was there was a really good some very good seeds sown, and I think those seeds are still there for mm. a national process. And you see, uh, for uh, for for this, you just look at a lot of local communities. For example, uh, the Mile Creek Memorial statue or plinth uh, represent uh, you know. Um, Remembering the Mile Creek Massacre, mm. you have a ceremony every year which is just fabulous with lots of school kids involved. How did it happen? Remembering the massacre that took place there. Uh, there are lots of ways that this could be done and it has to be healing and mm. guilt-free and that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. Hill Country, in the theme of NAIDOC, is also about the way that we treat our earth and the depth of wisdom that Indigenous ancestors and current leaders have here. Are we doing enough at this point to harness their insights in the way that Australia deals with climate change? We are not doing enough to harness the wisdom and the 60,000 years of experience Mm. that 
First Nations people have in, killing, in caring for country. Mm. But I am pleased to see that that conversation is uh, really starting to happen, particularly in the wake of the bushfires last year um, and Aboriginal methods of cool burns. But the other thing, of course, is that for for me, the theme of Hill Country um, is broader than that. It's about climate change. Mm. It's about the stewardship that uh, the uh, farmers have for their country. It's about mm. the fact that you know you've got places that are a part of Australia up in the Torres Strait mm. that are actually experiencing right now the effects of climate change because of the rising sea levels and what that means for the islands and for the crops on those islands. Mm. Uh, we've got aquifers being damaged. We've got a whole range of things in Australia. And Australia of all nations um, is probably one of the most vulnerable to climate change. So mm. there is a lot in the theme. There is the issue uh, that you've highlighted about uh, tabbing into the wisdom and knowledge of First Nations people. But I also think it's a, a theme that could be applied in a much broader sense as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And how important is the advice and expertise of First Nations women to get that right as well? Uh, look, it's absolutely critical. I mean, one of the wonderful things about First Nations culture is that women and men had uh, different special and sacred places, uh, places that men couldn't go. Um, and that knowledge still exists. It's still there despite uh, 230 years of colonization. And it's a matter of having those conversations. And I think the fact that Aboriginal women have played just such an important role um, mm. in the broader community, but particularly in the Aboriginal community, in terms of uh, child rearing, in terms of education, in terms of ceremony. I was up in um, Central Australia not so long ago and mm. we visited one of the national parks there and there were three caves. One was for men, one mm. was for women and one was communal. I mean, mm. that is the way our cultures operate. Mm. Looking at, at, I guess, the impacts of COVID and, you know, Sydney, um, as we mentioned, is, is facing another lockdown at the moment. What are the specific challenges that First Nations Australians, um, First, Nation, First Nations Australians are dealing with right now in regard to COVID and ongoing lockdown? Well, it's really uh, something that the federal government's responsible for, and that is vaccine rollout. Mm -hmm. uh, there is uh, parts of um, Australia that have a very high indigenous population. For example, the Kimberley and the Pilbara, mm -hmm. uh, where the rollout is very slow and the number of Aboriginal people that have been vaccinated uh, right across the country is a lot less than, uh, than the broader population on average. Uh, you've got some really bright pockets, for example, down in Victoria, where the government has handed over uh, the vaccine rollout to mm. Indigenous health organisations. And I think it was something like 47% uh, of the 
population, Aboriginal populations being vaccinated compared to 27% in the broader community. So uh, that is because the government has put trust in the Aboriginal uh, peak health organisations mm. to actually manage the vaccine. But you go to places like the Gulf um, up in North Queensland mm. where people will not be vaccinated, even their first vaccination, to what looks like December. Now, uh, the other thing that just astounds me is that the peak Aboriginal health organisation, Nature, is not at the main table on the COVID-19 um, coordinating committee. Now, that to me is just mm. inexplainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then you see gas being made um, like at St Joseph's College yesterday, uh, where we learned that 163 of their boarding students had been vaccinated with the Pfizer jab um, when it was intended for their 4% of Indigenous students. Um, so you do wonder whether where the well, um, it, it seems to me that New South Wales Wales Health have made a major blunder there, and mm. I would love to know um, who signed off. <laughs> On that decision, mm -hmm. uh, the other the other question that that poses, doesn't it, is if vaccinations are being made available to uh, Koori kids in private schools, are they being or are they going to be made mm. available to Aboriginal kids in public schools? Um, Linda, I want to look a uh, talk to you a little bit about, um, I guess, the, the crisis of domestic violence, which we do know, um, you know, impacts Indigenous communities pretty acutely. Can you tell me a little bit more about how Labor envisages the Indige Indigenous Leaders Council will help to tackle that, that epidemic? Um, and is it something that the government supports? Sure. So what um, I am extraordinarily disappointed in is it the peak Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisation uh, for domestic and family violence has not been um, involved or not been appointed to the main advisory group or even the um, advisory, the, the specific First Nations group that's been set up and that to me uh, is not a good sign. I'm not saying that the women that have been appointed are not good women and shouldn't be there. They all should be and they are outstanding women. But it just seems curious to me that the peak organisation, which put up a nomination, has not been um, not been appointed and that, mm. that just signals to me um, that there is something amiss and I guess that will play itself out. Uh, you are very right to say that the issue of domestic and family violence, including sexual violence, uh, is a very big issue in the Aboriginal mm. community. Mm. And I've always taken the view, and certainly Labor's position uh, in relation to this, is that if you only talk to women, if you only include women in the um, solutions, then you are um, never going to address the issue because it is a community-wide issue 
and men, their perpetrators or healers or, or whatever, have mm. to be involved in the con conversation. And so do children. I mean, you know, we know um, in the broader community as well as the Aboriginal community that the people or some of the people that really uh, experience violence, see violence, hear violence, are affected by violence, are children. And mm. it seems to me that they're an important part of the conversation as well. So Labor's position, or Labor's way forward, is making sure that all of those voices are heard and that we are talking to the right people mm. to take a advice from. And I've always had the view, as does Labor, is that advocacy is incredibly important. You shouldn't be afraid of it. Um, it might not be always what you want to hear, but mm. it's usually what you need to hear. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and for a government that's very intent on on marketing in the right way, that might be a, a good message for them to hear as well. Um, <laughs> Linda, just uh, reflecting on on NAIDOC Week one last time. I mean, what is one thing that you'd like every Australian to consider um, as they think about NAIDOC Week? What I'd like every Australian to do. Um, not just consider, but to do, is to make sure that they are better informed than what they are now. And there is uh, no excuse anymore for not being well informed. There are some fabulous Indigenous authors. Uh, there are some fabulous playwrights. Uh, there is uh, dancers. There are events. Uh, there are... Uh, every school that I go into does an acknowledgement of country. Mm. Most fly the Aboriginal flag um, and it's everyone's responsibility. And we can all play a part in bringing about um, a much better reconciled country. Yeah, 100%. Linda, thanks so much again for joining us. My me pleasure. Today. Thank you. All right, thank you so much to Linda Burney for that interview and um, sharing all those ideas and that wisdom and exactly what this theme around Hill, Hill Country means during NAIDOC Week. So thank you so much, and especially to our colleague Tala, who couldn't be here today, but she did that great interview and she also did um, the previous interview with Julia Banks as well, which you can find on the previous podcast. Thank you for joining me today, Georgie. I do have one final request and ask from you. So last episode, Tyler and I ended on our awesome screen suggestions. It's only fair that you have an opportunity to share what you have been watching and will be continuing to watch during this, this time. Well, look, I have to say that um, in the first in iteration of our COVID lockdown, I discovered a show, a Canadian TV show that brought me more joy and happiness than any other television program ever has. Um, and that program is called Shits Creek and it is written and created by uh, Dan Levy, a Canadian, basically he is my hero. Um, and this second iteration of lockdown 
um, in Sydney at least, I decided that the only show that would fill my needs right now is Schitt's Creek. So I have been re-watching it. Um, it will be my fifth time watching a series. I've never watched any TV series more than once. So the fact that I'm on my fifth running gives you an indication that my level of attachment to this show is really problematic. Um, but I can say this, that they're 20-minute episodes and I never watch one without finishing feeling like I have laughed and laughed. And I think in lockdown, how many that is seasons? Win. How many seasons of Shit's Creek are there? Because if you're on your fifth go of mm. watching this, which mm. is quite quite the journey, I know. <laughs> how many seasons? So there's six seasons. Um, wow. There's about twelve or thirteen episodes in each season, but they are only twenty minutes. So it's not quite like watching, you know, The Americans um, or you know a series like that where they're you know, a one hour special, but, um, yeah, it's, I just can't recommend it more highly. I did actually write about it, um, for women's agenda, particularly when I felt the extreme validation, um, when the, when this, you know, the Shits Creek were sort of completely stole the show at the Emmys and won, you know, four lots of best actor or best actress. They won best series. Um, and that felt, like validation for the time that I've invested in this terrific program. Yeah. So just a final thing on that was that, um, so yeah, Georgie did write this piece and I have not seen Schitt's Creek and still to this point, I've not watched it. So that is an option for me. Um, so Georgie wrote this piece and I can't remember, it had like a clever title, but it did go viral. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think I was reading it like, but I like having not watched it um, and seeing it's like, wow, I did not expect that story to reach the audience that it did. But it was like incredibly positive, all the comments. And clearly there are so many people out there who have found absolute joy in watching this show as you have. Yes, I'm not alone. I do take comfort in that. Um, and I really can, I just can't recommend it more highly. But I also have, to, I do have to say, and it reminds me of um, Chat 10 Looks 3 when you say you still haven't watched it because I feel like, Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb on their podcast often talk about the fact that when someone builds something up, it can make you very reluctant to go there because you're like, I do not understand what the fuss is. Um, and I realise that for anyone who knows me, Shits Creek would absolutely be in that category because I have talked it up so much. But I do feel very confident um, that it is genuinely simply the best television's ever been made. All right. Thank you so much for joining the Women's Agenda podcast, Georgie. Again, it's been a while, so it was nice to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can find all the stories that we've discussed in some shape on Women's Agenda, including Georgie's piece on Schitt's Creek. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at womensagenda.com.au forward slash subscribe. Thank you to Linda Burney for joining us with that interview and to Tala, our colleague, for undertaking that interview also. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.